From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. This election, voters will decide a lot more than who will lead Colorado. There are 11 statewide ballot measures. We'll sort through them. When you're presented with some of these things, especially the stuff like the legislature refers, it's hard to know what it does, why it's there, and maybe even what you should think about it. Then Indigenous people join in a spiritual walk to save their home for future generations. It's hard to try and be who your own culture is when somebody is still taking it away. And later, a love for the Rockies and for history combined into a collection of short stories. We are, all of us, woven into history and setting. And no matter how separated we feel from it, it affects us. What you get on a daily basis from Colorado Public Radio is thanks in large part to an ever-growing and dedicated community of support. As a member, you do more than listen. You help fund CPR. Thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Election Day is two weeks from today, but you can vote anytime between now and then because Colorado uses mail-in balloting. In addition to key statewide races for governor and U.S. Senate and congressional House races that could all impact the balance of power, there are 11 statewide ballot measures to consider. Let's break them down now with Public Affairs Editor Megan Verlee, reporter Benta Berkland and Andrew Kenny and Purplish, CPR's podcast about politics and policy. And before we dive in, a little fun first. All right, guys, I'm actually not sure if we've ever done trivia on Purplish before, but that's how we're going to start this episode. Woo! So, first of all, what do alcohol, psychedelic mushrooms, affordable housing, taxes, and school lunch have in common? A really fun Friday night? <laughs> <laughs> A book that is blue. A book that is blue. That's right. They are all in your blue book. They are all measures that are on Colorado voters' ballots this year. Colorado as a state has been voting on ballot measures for more than 140 years. We the people have decided the fate of more than 500 of them altogether. They're often pretty interesting. So I spent a little too much time researching not just this year's measures, but also a bunch of the measures of yesteryear. This is Purplish from CPR News, a podcast about Colorado politics, policy, and for this season, the midterm elections. I'm Andrew Kenny, and I'm here with my colleagues, Benta Berkland. Hey, Andy. And Megan Verlee. You know, I always sneak on for the initiatives episode. You can't help yourself. I really can't. (laughs) We're going to do just a little more trivia and then get to the 2022 ballot, focusing on what the measures do, why we have to decide on them as voters, and what it all says about Colorado. But... Again, first, trivia. There are 11 measures on the ballot. Real quick, how do you guys think that that stacks up to the past? Does it feel like a lot? It does to me because I had to edit most of the entries in our voter guide. (laughs) And it was a lot. I mean, yes, it feels like a lot, but it feels typical. I mean, it seems like we always have a lot of ballot issues. Yeah, Benta, you are correct. It's actually almost exactly average, at least in terms of how many initiatives we've been filling out lately. The longest ever was in 1912, with a whopping 33 initiatives on the ballot. 
Ooh, wow. Man, if uh, we had been around back then, that would be a very long episode of Purplish. Yeah, very, like very long. Like a season of Purplish. It was actually, it was a really interesting year. Voters approved laws establishing eight-hour workdays for a lot of different professions, especially in mines and smelters. They passed a law to allow recall elections. They created juvenile courts. They passed aid for mothers and neglected children. It sounds like a lot of really substantive issues were decided on. Yeah, and that's not even all 33 of them, which I will not be naming. But yeah, it was a great example of how Coloradans at the ballot box have really reshaped government, created new rights, changed how society works over the years. Now, I also spent a lot of time looking over those 500 plus initiatives and found some wackier stuff too. So let's get into the rest of my uh, my pop ballot quiz for you guys. I hope I'm not competing against Megan here. Oh, you are. <laughs> We're both going to lose. All right. So multiple choice. The most popular measure ever. Mm. You know, it passed at the biggest margin. Do you of think all it, time. Of all time. Okay. All Colorado time. <laughs> Do you think it was relief for the adult blind in 1918? Okay. Do you think it was prohibiting slavery and involuntary servitude in all circumstances in 2018? Or was it the 1972 measure where Colorado decided we were not going to be hosting the Olympics? I feel like we rest a lot on our laurels of not hosting the Olympics, so I'm going to go for that one. I guess I'll, I'll go for um, relief for for adults who are blind. Uh, Benta, you are correct. Oh. 93% of the voting populace wow. in 1918 decided to pass that measure. Megan, it was only uh, 59% of the population voted against the Olympics in 1918. Like I hate the Olympics less than I thought. <laughs> <laughs> Colorado, we don't hate the Olympics as much as you expect. Okay, now let's flip it on its head and try to guess the least popular measure of all time. So you mean the one that lost by the most? The one that lost hardest. Okay. The fewest people voted for, essentially. That's right. Okay. Was it a property tax increase in 1888? Was it creating a Cesar Chavez state holiday in 2002? Was it creating the county of Lyman, not Limon, in 1920? You notice we don't have a county with that name, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Or mm-hmm. was it allowing slot machines in airports in 1994? Ooh, uh, I'm going to go for allowing slot machines. Ooh. What do you think, Benton? I was thinking about that, but people don't like taxes, so I'm going to go with the tax one. <laughs> Megan, why do you think it's slot machines in airports besides the fact that we don't have any slot machines at DIA? Uh, I mean, DIA is like frantic enough already. You were you were both so close to being right. Slot machines was a close second at eight percent support. Uh, the property tax hike of 1888 though failed with 93 percent opposed. Wow! So Coloradans very consistently hating across the board tax increases. I couldn't find one that had ever passed besides when voters allowed in the 1930s a graduated income tax to be implemented. And that was at the height of like progressive politics. By the way, 1974, last bit of trivia, most winningest year, most winningest year ever for initiatives, 10 out of 10 passed. Uh, everything from banning nuclear explosions to reinstating the death penalty and banning busing for racial equity in schools. Voters can really run in a lot of different directions at the same time. Well, that kind of brings us perfectly to this year's ballot, which is going to take voters in a lot of directions and uh, maybe kind of raise a lot of questions in people's minds. Okay, so now we've gone through Andy's very precise historical ballot (laughs) trivia slash obsession 
potentially, yes. You Thank know, I've you, got them all on a spreadsheet. Oh, color coded. But um, <laughs> so so let's look forward to what voters are, are going to see on their ballots this election cycle. Exactly. And this kind of ties into CPR putting out our online voter guide, which we highly recommend you go look at. Andy and Menta, you guys have been writing like tons of detailed profiles of the candidates. But I am sorry to tell you that the real traffic, the like <laughs> hundreds of thousands of hits, it goes to the ballot measures. Don't, don't tell us that now. Sorry. The more obscure, the bigger the hits, because, you know, when you're presented with some of these things, especially the stuff like the legislature refers it's hard to know what it does, why mm -hmm. it's there, and, and maybe even what you should think about it. I think that's right. And people, I think I'm impressed with, A, we have such high voter participation in our state. And mm -hmm. a lot of people are very thoughtful about their approach to voting and going through and really want to make, you know, understand what they're voting on. I actually, this is my little piece of trivia. Remember, before we moved to all-mail ballots, uh, the clerks used to kind of beg voters, like, hey, write down your initiative votes before you come to the polling place. Like, fill out a sample ballot <laughs> or, like, have a cheat sheet because, for the love of God, do not stand in a voting booth and try mm -hmm. to figure these things out. You're going to slow everybody down. Filling out all 33 initiatives in Arguably, one reason this state was very receptive to all-mail ballots is because we have a lot of ballot initiatives, and that's just a lot easier to vote on at your kitchen table with the blue book and the internet next to you. Yeah, that's I right. think that's right. You you have a lot more time and you don't have that pressure that so you feel. So you can go on cpr.org and look up the ballot yeah. initiative guide. Exactly. We'll only plug that four or 5,000 more times this episode. <laughs> uh, so I think the easiest thing might be to start off with the stuff the legislature put on your ballot. Uh, and to get us into that, I decided to have a little bit of fun because they all start with letters. A, B, C, D. Well, sorry to pull us away from, from that cuteness overload, but, um, you know, this year's ballot, we're not starting at the beginning of the alphabet. Actually, this year, the amendments start with D, Amendment D, and that is new 23rd Judicial District Judges. Oh, boy. So, Megan, what is this? Why is it on the ballot? <laughs> well, it's on the ballot because... It has to be, apparently. Uh, oh. Apparently, lawmakers couldn't just do this on their own. They had to ask the citizens of Colorado uh, to change the, the Constitution to do it. Basically, the thing to know is that the state's largest judicial district, the 18th, it covers Aurora, Douglas County, Elbert, and Lincoln. It's got like a million mm -hmm. people in it. And mm -hmm. the state is in the process of splitting it into two districts mm -hmm. so that Aurora stays in the 18th and the rest goes to this new 23rd judicial district. This has been pretty widely supported by local people on the ground. It's been supported by lawmakers. But now they have to figure out how to get judges into this new district. Mm. And apparently uh, you have to... Uh, Ask the voters if you can reassign judges from the 18th district to the 23rd. Wow. So some judges would go to this new district. Exactly. It's people who are already serving in the giant existing 18th district get to go with the 23rd when it's created in a year or two. Uh, so excited to help rearrange the judges. It's really boring. I know. But it's a thing that you as a Coloradan apparently have to weigh in on. All right. What happens if it doesn't pass, though? I was really wondering about that. And fortunately, there was a hearing on this and a, a lawmaker actually asked that. And mm -hmm. the people who are putting this through the legislature said, uh, we don't really know. We'll probably just come back and try again. So right. we'll see uh, how many uh, chaos uh, votes uh, against it we get. Like yeah. are most judicial districts smaller than? M yes, okay. they are. Uh, 
the 18th turned out to just be way, way big. And uh, people who advocate for the split just say it was getting very unwieldy. So moving along to the next amendment, Amendment E, it would extend homestead exemption to gold star spouses. So I can start on this one also. Uh, The homestead property tax exemption is a break that currently goes to seniors and disabled veterans. It it lops off some of the property tax that you owe on your home. Um, And this would just extend that tax break to people whose husband or wife was killed serving in the military or who died uh, for some reason related to their service. Okay. Yeah, as we've heard, historically, voters have been fairly open to tax breaks and benefits for various groups with uh, special needs. And this is a pretty small sum. It's about $288,000, I think, per year that it would cost the state in revenue or cost the governments in revenue. Yeah, the analysis suggested it's really only a few hundred people who would be eligible for this property tax break because it has limits. Like you have to have lived in your home for a Mm. decade, I think. Okay. Uh, One thing I thought was kind of notable, though, I went back and looked at the votes in the legislature. Not a single no vote against this. It was unanimous. R's, D's, House, Senate. Everybody voted to put this on the ballot. Mm, Okay. Well, interesting. So, Megan, you're now our designated amendment expert for this episode. Yes. I am almost as nerdy as Andy, but not quite. Mm, I I don't know. I'll have to do a trivia (laughs) contest between the two of you to to judge that properly. But um, could you tell us about Amendment F? So this would make changes to charitable gaming operations. Exactly. Two changes in particular. One is that it would shorten the time that a charity has to be in existence before it can start running like a bingo or a raffle or something to raise money. Right now it's five years. This would take it down to three. Hmm. Uh, The other thing it would do is it would allow a charity to pay the people who run their games. Right now that has to be a volunteer position. Is there like a big bingo scene that I'm missing out on? I feel like there's one at my like local strip mall, but like, what is going on here? And why are we always voting on this stuff? It does feel like that. Yeah, if you're having a sense of deja vu, it's because this exact measure or very similar version of it was on the ballot two years ago and failed. And so actually, you're not missing out on a giant bingo scene. Um, <laughs> according to an official with the Colorado Charitable Bingo Association, uh, who talked to us for our voter guide, bingo is in, quote, a death spiral because mm. the state rules have not changed enough in recent years to make it viable. And so charities that want to to fundraise this way are arguing that if if these rules don't change, they're just not going to be able to keep bingo alive. And, and right now a charity can't hire someone to run the bingo game. It's got to be a volunteer. It also suggests that maybe nobody wants to play bingo. Well, Andy, maybe. don't knock bingo. Not going to speak to bingo on a, on the virtues of bingo, but I will say that opponents would argue that if you start paying people for this, uh, that's less money that's going to the charitable cause that this is supposed to raise money for. Mm. Um, you know, and it could. But isn't kind that of, up to the charity? You would think exactly. Well, I um, guess people do love gambling, so maybe I'm wrong. And the gaming association is opposed to this because arguably people might stick closer to home and play bingo instead of going up to Blackhawk or sports betting. <laughs> Andrew Kenny, Megan Verlee, Benta Berkland, and Purplish, CPR's podcast about politics and policy. We're taking a look at the 11 statewide ballot initiatives. When we come back, Proposition FF, the Healthy School Meals for All initiative, and Proposition GG, how future ballot measures could impact taxes. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Who will be Colorado's next governor, the next U.S. senator, and who will represent us in the House of Representatives? This November, you get to choose. You also get to decide 11 questions from legalizing psychedelic mushrooms to cutting the income tax. 
When your ballot leaves you with more questions than answers, Colorado Public Radio is here to help in both English and Spanish in the Voter's Guide at CPR.org. Ballots went out in the mail last week for the November midterm election. There are 11 statewide ballot measures voters will decide. We're talking through them today with Purplish, CPR's podcast about politics and policy. Let's rejoin public affairs editor Megan Verlee and public affairs reporters Andrew Kenny and Benta Berkland. Proposition FF is healthy school meals for all. This is a much bigger one than the ones we've been talking about. Um, as you guys probably know, schools in the U.S. generally only offer free or reduced lunch, as you've heard of it, mm-hmm. to students who have lower incomes. That changed briefly in the pandemic. The federal government offered universal free school lunch. Lots more kids started eating lunch uh, at school. This proposal would try to make that permanent for Colorado, trying to provide lunch for anybody who wants it, including an estimated 70,000 kids who don't get a free meal and can't afford one as well, and the ones who kind of fall through the cracks. So here's the hitch. This issue first showed up at the legislature last year as a bill that would have just started covering school lunches. Mm -hmm. And as I recall, you guys probably remember this better than me, the budget committee was like, that is a lot of money. We can't do that. So backers then turned around and said, well, we'll talk to voters about this. And instead of using existing state money, they want to raise taxes, but only on some of the state's wealthiest people. So uh, this initiative would raise about $100 million a year, they estimate. Um, and that's by uh, increasing taxes for households that make more than 300000 a year. Not to get too far into the nitty gritty, it cuts into the deductions they can take. The net effect is joint filers or single filers making more than 300000 in total would be looking at a tax hit could start around 800 bucks per household of extra taxes in the lowest like 300 to $400,000 bracket and ramp up from there. Um, what I'm wondering is this measure does count as a tax increase. So on your ballot, it's got the big all caps, scary language, shall taxes be raised by $100 million? It's like shouting at you. <laughs> Voters have almost never approved any kind of increase to income taxes. Uh, does that doom it? You know, I... Like you said, voters almost never approve any kind of tax increase. So I don't think it's a great thing to have that ballot language. But I don't, you know, I don't, I think. You mean saying, like the way it's written might not help it. Yeah, but I don't think it necessarily dooms it. I guess one thing I'm curious about is how many students will be getting this lunch whose families can afford to pay for the meal. You know, so there may be some voters who would feel like this is a waste of government spending because it's going to families, at least some portion of it who are fully able to pay for the school lunch. Legitimately, I have a kid who was eating for free last year who's costing me money in the cafeteria now, and I would you know, have to think about whether that was something that I thought the state should be covering for us. Um, yeah, I think it's going to come down maybe less to the tax increase and more to the policy question of whether people think that there are enough kids and families struggling to, to eat lunch at school, that mm-hmm. this $100 million tax increase is needed. Well, you know, voters have proved willing sometimes to help people in need uh, with these ballot initiatives. And like we've seen, there's not really organized opposition. I imagine it's kind of hard to campaign against school lunch. Yeah, you don't look good when you do that. <laughs> yeah. And I'll just add that the proponents argue that by making it universal, you also make it easier for kids who already qualify to actually take that lunch because it takes away the stigma of other kids knowing that, you know, you get the free or reduced lunch. 
I have to say I have an unintended consequences question, which I haven't answered for myself yet, which is that schools get a lot of other funding based on how many kids are enrolled in free and reduced price lunch. And Mm -hmm. if you start paying for lunch for every kid in Colorado, does that make it harder for schools to actually measure their low income student populations and get those federal benefits? I, I assume something out there has wouldn't they just that. keep the same administrative process in place and just collect the data anyway? I mean, I'll say my school begs every parent to fill out that application, mm. whether they qualify or not. So I kind of think it might be messier than mm-hmm. than you'd imagine. One other thing interesting about this, have you guys looked at the blue book for this? I have not. Not yet, no. So it's got this income tax table, which is relatively new, uh, and it shows actually exactly how much the effect will be on your taxes for different income tiers. So it says, you know, for all these lower income brackets, no change, no change, no change, no change. You're making under $300,000, no change. And then it shows these guys, these people making over three hundred. they're the ones paying. So if it passes, I would give credit to the fact that the blue book is really explicitly saying who it affects and who it doesn't financially. Well, it, it's a good thing that you just brought up that tax table because the next thing that the voters are going to see on their ballot is Proposition GG, which is called Add Tax Information Table to Petitions and Ballots. Uh, I love these titles. That's right. Prop GG is the rare ballot measure that is about ballot measures. Right now, that tax information table we just mentioned is only included in the blue book. If GG passes, voters would not only see the tax table in their blue books, they would also see it on the petitions they signed to get stuff on the ballot and on the ballot itself. I'm guessing this one was referred by Democratic lawmakers. Uh, It does seem like it speaks right to that eternal struggle over taxes and Mm -hmm. tax policy. Uh, You know, like you mentioned earlier, the Taxpayer Bill of Rights uh, requires language that sort of advantages tax cuts when they're on the ballot and disadvantages tax increases, the shall taxes be raised language. Big, scary language. Exactly. In this proposition, it sounds like it's sort of like the reverse effort. It kind of pushes back against that and maybe Uh gives a little juice to certain types of tax increases by by how the information is framed and presented. The idea is that it's supposed to make, yes, those certain tax increases more favorable looking because you realize, oh, it's only going to affect the top 3% of voters or whatever. Um, and it also shows voters, well, if we cut taxes, here's where most of the benefit flows. Here's how cutting the income tax actually delivers half of the financial benefit to the top few percent of earners. But on the other hand, having this table is makes the ballot potentially much longer and more complicated. And it may be confusing for some voters as well. I mean, it's more information isn't doesn't always necessarily make things more clear. That is true. Okay, next up, Proposition 121, state income tax rate reduction. Yeah, and what this one does is it takes the state income tax and creates a reduction from 4.55%, that's 4.5% basically, to 4.4%. So your average taxpayer with an income of $79,000 would save about 119 bucks. If you're pulling in a million dollars a year, you would save about 1500 bucks in taxes. Supporters argue this is the perfect time to cut the income tax rate because the state has actually been collecting too much income tax. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's been sending refunds back to to taxpayers. And so if you cut the overall rate, well, then 
you know, you're keeping the budget within its its spending caps. And I do think it's kind of interesting that you've got both the Republican and Democratic candidates for governor talking about how they don't like the income tax and they want to see it cut or eliminated. So it kind of feeds into an anti-income tax vein right now. Right. And, you know, it's worth pointing out that Polis is not an aligned with most Democrats on this issue, especially progressives and people on the left warned that like, hey, the state can't really afford to give up all of this revenue. It's fine when things are going well and we have excess revenue, but when Colorado does fall on a lean year, this just means much less money for K through 12 schools, healthcare, and other major government priorities. Voters approved a similar tax cut back in 2020. It's part of a kind of a conservative strategy where if Republicans can't have power in the state house, they can still cut the size of government by asking voters to lower taxes, which voters tend to like to do. Andrew Kenny, Benta Berkland, Megan Verlee, and Purplish, CPR's podcast about politics and policy. We'll explore the rest of the statewide ballot measures after a break, including the effort to decriminalize psychedelic mushrooms and the push to change where alcohol can be sold. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Here are candidates for the top offices in Colorado this election season on the issues in their own words. The CPR News podcast, Who's Gonna Govern, is everywhere you listen to podcasts and in the Colorado Public Radio app. Voters will decide 11 statewide ballot measures this election. Before the break, we heard about the initiatives that impact taxes. Let's shift focus now to the other measures. Here once again is the public affairs team of Megan Verlee, Andrew Kenny, and Benta Berkland and Purplish, CPR's podcast about politics and policy. Moving away from tax policy, I think a lot of people will be interested in Proposition 122. So this is access to natural psychedelic substances. Of everything on the ballot, this one's probably gotten the most attention, um, so I'll try to keep it a little bit short. But the big thing is it would decriminalize possession, use, and gifting of psychedelic mushrooms uh, and several other mind-altering plant-based substances. And it would not allow retail sales, so no shroom dispensaries. Uh, A lot of people would end up going to this kind of deregulated black market, I guess. But then it would also create a system where regulated counselors could offer supervised psychedelic trips. So proponents are pushing this. What what are the reasons behind it? Basically, there's a movement going on kind of around the country in different spots to try to legalize psilocybin, the, the compounded mushrooms, because there are people out there who are really feeling that they're getting psychiatric benefits from it from using uh, sort of guided trip experiences to deal with PTSD or anxiety. There are a lot of actual studies going on with this. And proponents say, like, the science is going to get there, but our country moves so slowly on accepting the medical benefits of things that are considered to just be recreational drugs that they don't want to wait for the FDA for all these processes. They say, we have a good sense that this natural medicine is helping people now. We want people to have access to it without the fear of arrest and, and criminalization. But why do you think it's running like this year? Again, it's, it's the midterms. It might be a tough year for liberals. Why put, you know, drugs on the ballot this year? It's an interesting question. I, I will say that Oregon is the only state that has passed something like this so far to decriminalize mushrooms. They're still in the process of implementing it. 
I think what's happening is there is a lot of money out there to change these laws. It's money coming from Dr. Bronner's, the soap company, uh, Scott's miracle Grow, the fertilizer. And there's a, a philanthropist who died a couple of years ago, but who put some really big seed money into this. But Colorado, we legalized marijuana first. Recreationally, I think it's seen as a, as a good place to try this. Denver has decriminalized mushrooms. So I think there's an opportunity seen here. I'll definitely, I mean, I think this is one we'll be watching for sure. And I'll be curious just what voters do decide. I've, I've talked to plenty of people who supported marijuana legalization, but now have seen some of the unintended consequences, especially with high THC products and youth and access and things like that. So, yeah, there are people who have not been happy with how marijuana legalization has rolled out who worry that legalizing mushrooms could be very similar. And one thing I think is really interesting is you you also obviously hear the law enforcement folks who don't want more substances Mm -hmm. legalized, but you hear people in the grassroots of the psychedelic movement who actually just think that this is not the right way to legalize and who who want people to vote no so they can go back to the drawing board. Yeah, Yeah. on this ballot measure, go back to the drawing board and put something forward that prioritizes equity, prioritizes kind of Coloradans and Coloradans of color uh, in setting up any new regulated framework. And so it's a really interesting measure, but I'm sort of surprised at how low key the campaigning around it has been. Yeah, that is surprising. So the next thing on the ballot is Proposition 123. It would dedicate revenue for affordable housing programs. And I think we can just skip this one, right, guys? Because it was our on our last episode of Purple. I mean, you so. guys did spend a lot of time talking about this. And go listen to that. It was, uh, of course, so good. Oscar, <laughs> Emmy winning, whatever. Oh, man. Long story short, though, uh, this measure says, are you willing to give up a chunk of your Tabor tax refund and have that money repurposed to fund affordable housing. The flip side, of course, on that is that in lean years, are you willing to see the state keep spending on affordable housing, even as it might be cutting other spending to like education? All that and more. Go listen to that last episode of ours. So to wrap all this up, let's have a a three pack here. Is propositions 124, 125, and 126 all about booze? Alcohol. Yeah, see what you did there. Three yeah, pack. Exactly. All right. I think I've got this one. I will say that Will Cornelius, our summer intern, uh, was the big reporter on this. So I'm piggybacking on his work. What those three have in common, 124, 125, 126, is that they all relax restrictions in Colorado's liquor laws in ways that are arguably more convenient for consumers, but also stand to bring in some big money for the businesses that got them on the ballot. Mostly being grocery stores, from what I understand. Actually, uh, funny thing. Uh. So one of these is wine and groceries, and that obviously has a a grocery store component. But no, the biggest spending has not come from groceries. Mm. I guess we'll get into that. Let's start with Prop 124. It allows chain liquor retailers to eventually own, is this right, an unlimited number of locations, while current law limits them to just a few. So I can start on this one also. Uh, a national chain liquor store company, Total Wine and More. Okay. Uh, they have hundreds of locations around the country. They're based in Maryland. One of the co-founders is actually a Maryland congressman. They want to expand in Colorado. They have put all the money into this measure. Okay. So they could have unlimited stores. liquor stores in Colorado. Eventually. It, it, there's passes. a rollout timeline on it. But yes, eventually they would be able to expand uh, really as much as they wanted statewide. So let's shift to Proposition 125. This one seems pretty self-explanatory. So it would allow grocery and convenience stores to sell wine. 
Exactly. Uh, you know, groceries have only been able to sell full-strength beer at most of their locations for about three years now. Uh, now they're looking to add wine to those offerings. That's another area where the smaller liquor stores just see their product getting sucked up by the big guys and uh, losing out to grocery stores or big chain retailers. The small liquor stores are worried about this stuff. Oh, exactly. But on the other side, we talk to people who work at grocery stores who say that like customers come in and are shocked they can't find wine because mm-hmm. a lot of other states do have wine sales in grocery stores. And mm-hmm. so the groceries say, yeah, we might benefit. But really, like this is what consumers want. Yeah. People are maybe expecting that when they're at a grocery store. Yeah. Um, the last one is Prop 126. That's third-party delivery of alcoholic beverages. You can guess what that does. Uh, yeah, and this ties into wine and groceries because it would let Instacart bring your wine to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the other component of this is it would let companies like DoorDash get in on bringing alcohol from a liquor store. Right now, liquor stores have to own their own delivery vehicles and stuff. This would let these third-party apps get in on it. Uh, and the liquor stores that we've heard from say, these guys are going to gouge us. We saw that with restaurants and food delivery okay. that, like, you know, if you order through DoorDash, the restaurant's getting a lot less profit. Mm-hmm. DoorDash is getting more. Uh, the liquor stores are worried they'll be put in that same squeeze. And okay. you got to think a lot of people who are using Instacart already to order from Sprouts or King Supers or whatever. Uh It'll be tempting to throw that bottle of wine on that delivery order instead of going out and getting it from the liquor store. If that wine measure passes, right? If the wine measure passes, right. Okay. So liquor stores feel, may and by and large, that they may stand to lose something with this third-party delivery. I mean, I think they think it's an existential threat. You know, the step back I take on it is that until pretty recently, Colorado had this suite of liquor laws that came in after prohibition that really restricted who could sell what kind of alcohol. Mm -hmm. And what they did is they allowed local, independent small liquor stores to flourish across the state. We've got more than a thousand of them. And their trade organization says they've got a really high rate of foreign-born ownership, a really high rate of women owners. And so this is like a sector of independent businesses that kind of think they might go away if these measures pass. But on the other hand, there are plenty of folks who will argue that if an industry needs a whole bunch of laws to keep Mm -hmm. them in business, maybe that's not what laws are for. Hmm. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack with all of this. Mm -hmm. So what do you two think? Would this trio of alcohol bills, would it change where or how you would shop for alcohol? I have to admit that I still try to buy all my beer at like my local liquor store because mm-hmm. I like the guy behind the counter. I've been seeing them for years. You know, I like the, the greater selection. But, you know, I toss a six pack in my cart at the grocery store pretty frequently when I don't have time. So I would think wine would kind of be the same way. And every six pack or bottle you buy at the grocery store is one you're not buying from a liquor store. It just seems like convenience would be a huge factor for so many consumers. Yeah, for my part, I'd end up buying the big case of beer at Costco because they got like big craft brands for cheap. And then uh, it takes me forever to get through it. So it has eaten into the amount of time and money I spend at my liquor store that's literally around the corner. We've been listening to Purplish, CPR's podcast about politics and policy, with public affairs reporters Andrew Kenny and Benta Berkland and public affairs editor Megan Verlee. Read about all 11 statewide ballot measures, along with profiles of the candidates, in our voter guide at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. He was called the man of a thousand faces. Lon Chaney was born in Colorado Springs in 1883. 
The child of deaf parents and grandson of the founder of the Colorado School for the Deaf and Blind, Cheney mastered pantomime at a young age. After a start as a prop boy at the Colorado Springs Opera House, he became an actor, first vaudeville stages, then Hollywood, during the era when body language and facial expressions did the talking. In film after film, using makeup and sometimes torturous costumes, he played the role of the outsider with conviction, strapping his shins behind him to become a man with no legs, bending his nose upward with wire to create the skull-like face of the Phantom of the Opera, and harnessing 50 pounds to his shoulders as the Hunchback of Notre Dame. And he did it all for more than shock value. As Cheney wrote, the lowest types of humanity may have within them the capacity for supreme self-sacrifice. A Colorado postcard from CPR, with support from Sheets and Giggles. Every year, a group of indigenous people in rural Utah gather for the same purpose, to try to save their home for future generations. Just outside the tiny community of White Mesa sits a uranium mill that the Ute Mountain Ute tribe believes is poisoning its land and people. Over the weekend, the tribe held its annual spiritual walk and protest. As CPR's Western Slope reporter Stina Sieg explains, they were not alone. The sun has finally peeked out of the clouds over the White Mesa Community Center, where a crowd of elders and toddlers and activists of all ages braces against the wind. Like many here, Carl Moore is not from White Mesa, but Moore, part of the Hopi and Chimawavi tribes, knew he had to drive in from Salt Lake City and bless the walk with a song. Basically, it's saying, you know, we're all related here. Here we are, all of us, and it's a good day for us to be together. It's about five miles to the White Mesa Mill, the only functioning uranium mill in the country. The site is also a disposal area for radioactive waste from around the world. Since 2017, residents and their supporters have walked to it in protest, demanding it be moved or shut down entirely. A pilot car leads a long line onto Highway 191, more than 100 people filling the shoulder on the main artery through southeastern Utah's remote desert. The protesters hold up their homemade signs and big banners, Messages like, keep uranium in the ground, and water is life. Yolanda Badback says this is their biggest walk ever. It's amazing to see a lot of people, a lot of people from different tribes that are out here to, to support us. She founded the protest, picking up the mantle of her late uncle, who also fought against the mill. Her brother Michael Badback says when the mill's smokestacks are going... The smoke settles in White Mesa and you can smell the sulfur. He blames the mill for increasing cases of asthma in the community's kids and doing much worse to seniors. A lot of our elders mysteriously got sick and a lot of them have passed and we don't know, we don't know what the dude, the cause was that. The tribe worries radioactive waste is seeping into aquifers. NPR affiliate KSJD reports that contaminants are in the groundwater. But the mill's owner, Colorado company Energy Fuels, told the station it believes that's naturally occurring. A federally funded study on the mill's potential health impacts is expected by 2025. To those who support the mill, protester Rebecca Hammond has this to say. Let's put it in their backyards and see how they feel. 
She lives in the Ute Mountain Ute capital of Toyok, Colorado, but has family here. Hammond says this isn't just where people live. It's where they hunt and harvest plants for their medicine. You get everything you need out here, and when somebody else is destroying it for the sake of a financial gain, you know, it's hard. It's hard to try and be who your own culture is when somebody is still taking it away. The caravan of walkers, strollers, and cars moves slowly, with several stops for water and snacks. A few hours later, they arrive at the mill's turnoff. Everybody squeeze in, we're gonna get a group photo picture here. The protesters stand under the mill's big sign and hold up their fists in resistance. A drone from an advocacy group buzzes above, shooting video and photos. Michael Badback tells me he hopes the company and Utah legislators understand how serious they are about this. We just want our land to be safe and pure like it was hundreds of years ago. Badback says no matter what, his family will keep fighting this fight. In White Mesa, Utah, I'm Stina Sieg, CPR News. An obsession with the Rocky Mountains drives Heather Mateu Sappenfield to write. An obsession not just with the topography, but with the people of the Rockies who have to navigate economic, social, and racial disparities. Sappenfield lives in Vail. Her collection of short stories is called Lyrics for Rock Stars. We spoke last winter. Heather, welcome to the show. Hi, Andrea. Thank you. You picked a passage to read from the short story, The Oldest Living Man in America. Could you set it up for us and and then read that passage? Oh, absolutely. Um, This is the final story in the collection, and the collection is actually dedicated to my grandfather, who was for a time the oldest living man in America at 111. Wow. Uh, Yeah. And um, But this scene is a 109-year-old man who is watching Neil Armstrong take his first steps on the moon while remembering his boyhood in early Denver, specifically his father leaving to fight for the Confederacy in the Civil War um, with the rest of his family, though he didn't believe in slavery. The oldest living man in America. My father trotted away on a fine bay horse in the settling dust of a stagecoach. Mama said she watched till a plane swallowed him. Two months later, a letter arrived. He'd been assigned to an artillery unit along with his brothers. Mama took heart that he was not in the infantry nor the militia. He wrote that they had sequestered his horse first thing as well as his brother's steeds. He said his father was in the militia along with nearly every man from the county, gentlemen and crackers alike. He said the McNichol men celebrated a grand reunion. By the time I was old enough to fully comprehend this letter, it had grown lacy and its creases were almost air. It was the only letter she got. She wrote but did not tell him he had a son. 
For the better part of my life, I nod on this omission. Then illness stole Eulalie, and I stood gaping at my own life's contradictions. Hmm. Beautiful. I noticed that uh, in a lot of your stories, you intermingle history, um, you know, this battle and then also um, the first man on the moon. And um, I wonder why history is so critical to your writing. Oh, I just think we are all of us woven into history and setting and that no matter how separated we feel from it, it affects us. And so I love to bring together the history of this area that I love so well as a Colorado native and then create a rich, complex character and and have them meet that. Usually some sort of a history that we may have not even be aware or or readers may not even have been aware occurred in Colorado. I love that aha moment, too, where you realize, oh, um, I didn't know that went on here. Mm. Um and, and the same thing for the characters, having that sort of aha moment um, where they are growing. So I love to bridge that, having the character sort of have that aha moment at the same time as the reader. One author said of your collection, Heather Mateus Sappenfield has drawn a map of Colorado and written a legend that describes the inner workings of people's hearts. The Rocky Mountains, as we said, and adventures in the Rockies are a theme in a lot of your stories. One in Mm -hmm. particular is one called Thinking's Deadly. It's about a woman (laughs) whose husband dies in an ice climbing accident. Her family asks her why her husband was so irresponsible, um, but she doesn't see it that way. And in Vail, where you live, you're surrounded by people who take risks, who long for this adrenaline rush. How do you see that? Well, I mean, that's... I mean, even skiing, we lose people skiing all the time. I mean, sport and adventure, I think we all strive to have something that makes us feel alive. And it can be an external adventure like skiing or ice climbing or whatever that may be, or it can be something that you're working on internally, right? And so you're trying to get through that. It just depends upon where you are within yourself during that time. I think that where I live up here in Vail and in Colorado, we, we tend to have a lot of people that come that have the mindset of wanting to push the envelope physically um, just because of what, what it offers as far as recreation and things you can do with, you know, whether it's ice climbing, skiing, backcountry skiing, rock climbing, mountain biking, um, you name it. You know, Colorado can offer that. Um, But you don't necessarily have to go to a place like this even to have those experiences either. So I hope that the stories also speak beyond this place to people who who are seeking those things around the whole country and the world. Leah, the main character in the story, has a close encounter with a bear that leads to this catharsis. And I wonder how the bear made it into the story and what its role was exactly. I have done many things in my life. I'm an outdoorsy person, and thus I, I live here, and I've been a ski instructor and raced mountain bikes and, and done all of these things. And that actually came from all of these stories have roots in my life. I either experienced them or I heard about them or I saw them or there was some part, aspect of history that I experienced, and I went, oh, my gosh, you know, and that changed how I looked at something. Um, So in this case, I had a friend who lost a husband in an ice climbing accident, Mm. and she was so stoic. 
that it really stuck with me, that loss. But then in conjunction, a couple of years later, I was literally trail running behind my house and a storm had come in and I was running downhill and the wind was blowing the trees sideways. And I just happened out the corner of my eye to see a huge, huge bear mm. running perpendicular to my route. And it just went up and I, I stopped and I watched it go up and over the trail. And if I had not stopped, we would have intersected. Um, and that, has, that stays with you, <laughs> watching a bear running full tilt. Um, they're fast. <laughs> right, yeah. I imagine. I want to talk about children in your stories. Um, a lot of them um, take a major role in your stories, and um, they're keen observers of their families. I felt like they almost seem to know too much. And your first story, Indian Prayers, told from a young girl's perspective, her mother tells her that her dad has left the family for another woman. Why tell this from a child's perspective? You know, it's an interesting, these are, these are the choices an author makes, right? And, and we, the collection is divided into two sections, Songs of Innocence and Songs of Wisdom. And so much of who we are as our experiences as children form who we become later in life. So the stories progress sort of chronologically in that way. Um, kind of looking at what exactly is innocence and what really is wisdom, what, in, with what we gain as we move through adulthood, coming to the ends of our lives. Is that really the wisdom? Um, and so it's, I begin from the child's perspective because I wanted to move through from that place all the way through the spectrum of life, but also because it, when you are with children in stories and you're reading about children in stories as an adult, inherently there's an irony in that you know more than they do. Um, right. we, we, we have that quote-unquote wisdom, right? And so we're judging and watching and experiencing these things with them. Um, and, and we're worried for them. You know, we're, we're thinking. And so there's this extra layer to the story when it's told by a child that is naive and moving along and learning about life and losing that naivety. You wrote this collection of short stories over a period of 20 years. And sometimes short story collections can feel to the reader incomplete or not satisfying. But just to wrap up, yours feel very whole. What do you like about writing short stories, the genre? Oh, they're so hard to write. I find them the most challenging, and I think that's what I love about it. You come into a short story right in the middle of things with a character, and you're going to, you can know you're going to head into the crux of something. And I love that you can read them in one sitting. You can you can come, it's perfect before bed, and you know, and, and then kind of let it marinate when you're finished. I love the economy of language that every single sentence needs to be moving that story forward, but also advancing the theme and advancing the theme of the whole collection. I just love the beautiful little concise thing that a st short story is. Heather, thanks so much for joining us. Absolutely, thank you, Andrea. Heather Mateu Sappenfield has written a collection of short stories called Lyrics for Rock Stars. We spoke last year. Thanks for joining us today. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.